All right. Thank you all for um, letting me come and preach to you tonight from the book of Numbers. Um, before I start, I just want to give a little testament or anecdote that I was thinking about. Um, I, if you would have told me three years ago that I would be preaching, I, I wouldn't have believed you. I um, have always been a pretty quiet kid um, growing up, and I, ne I never thought I would be able to preach. Um, so when Josh asked me to preach a few months ago um, for the book of Numbers, I was like a little anxious at first, but um, through the prayers of many people, through the encouragements that I've received, um, and by God's grace, I'm able to do this. So um, if you want a testament to the power of prayer, that's it. Um, so I consider it a great privilege to be here tonight and teach you all, and I thank you for allowing me this opportunity and for supporting me during my ministry training at Southern. I'm thankful tonight, especially to Josh Womble, who asked me if I would be interested in preaching as part of this series back in November or December. Um, Josh Green did a great job of introducing me, but um, I'm currently in my second semester at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, working on a Master of Divinities degree. I've been attending First Baptist Fairdale since I moved to Louisville in August of last year, and I've really enjoyed my time here so far. Before I begin preaching, I should probably say that this is not the first time I've preached this sermon. I actually preached it last Sunday night at my home church in Reedsville, North Carolina. My family wanted to hear me preach, but couldn't make the eight-hour drive to hear me tonight, so I just preached it while I was at home last weekend. And I'm hoping that since this is the second time, um, I'm hoping that since this is the second time, I'll preach it better this week than I did last week. <laughs> so with that being said, you may be asking yourself, how can there be good news in a book like Numbers? It can seem like an unimportant book full of irrelevant stories, but I hope that you'll bear with me tonight and come to see that there is good news even in this mostly depressing book. If I were to conduct a survey of everyone in this room, asking them their top five favorite books in the Bible, many, many of you would include some great books on your lists. Maybe the Psalms, the Gospel of John, Romans, or maybe even Isaiah. But I bet none of those lists would include the book of Numbers. Uh, we think of it as an obscure book that doesn't have much meaning for us today. Um, oftentimes, I know I've done this, we get really ambitious when we start a new year. They say, we say, this year I'm finally going to read the Bible all the way through. We have so much hope and desire to read God's word in its totality, but certain problems always seem to arise. We get through Genesis and Exodus and we're rolling. We've seen the mighty acts of God in creation, the flood, the stories of Abraham and Joseph, the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and the giving of the Ten Commandments. Then we get to Leviticus, and all that excitement is gone. We're met with law upon law, sacrifice upon sacrifice, and it drains a lot of that hope we had at the start. But let's say we get through Leviticus. We'll see that Numbers is the next book, the fourth book of the Bible. We think that excitement and wonder from Genesis and Exodus will return and we'll see and read of God's mighty actions again. What we're met with, however, is optimism at first, but quickly things degenerate, and the people of Israel have rebelled against God and Moses and complained that they would rather go back to Egypt and be slaves. We'll see in this book, the book of Numbers, the fundamental distrust 
that all the Israelites, including Moses, have for God. By the end, there's a whole new group of people because the original group of the Exodus has all died out. While Numbers contains a lot of interesting stories, like the Balaam story that Josh mentioned this morning, the overall narrative is bleak for the most part. One commentator, Raymond Brown, says, the story of Numbers is a perpetual warning against the danger of knowing what God demands but failing to do it. And you and I are often like this. We know what God wants of us, yet we disobey him and fail to do it. And that's why I believe Numbers can help us. It reminds us of God's unfailing love for his people and his good purposes for them. But it also remind us, reminds us that God demands perfection. And we can never be perfect by trying to keep the law, but that Christ has achieved perfection for us and we have life in him. Before we get into the book of Numbers, I want to discuss a New Testament passage that gives us a reason for why studying the book of Numbers is important and necessary. Many of us, including myself, default to the New Testament. In it, we read about Christ's coming, his life, his death, and his resurrection. In Acts, we read the story of the early church, and the New Testament letters help us to better understand Jesus' work. However, the New Testament does not make the Old Testament irrelevant. So I want to read a passage that will help to give us a reason why studying the Old Testament in general, and the book of Numbers in particular, is useful and important for us as believers. So if you'll turn with me to 1 Corinthians 10, we'll see Paul give a warning to the church that stems from the book of Numbers. And we're going to be reading verses 1 through 13. It says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has, overcome, has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Here in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is speaking mainly of the events that we see in the book of Numbers. I want to draw your attention in particular to verse 11. Paul says that the events that took place in the wilderness were written down specifically for our, that means all Christians, instruction. According to Paul, we have much to learn from the book of Numbers. The Israelites, as we will see, fell into great evil and rebellion. But, but as Paul says, these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. We should walk away from this study tonight of Numbers, understanding how the people of Israel disobeyed God and how we should learn from their mistakes and obey God in our lives. So now let us dive into this most important book written for our instruction. I want to offer a brief structural layout, and then for the main content of my sermon, 
I want to give a brief word about a narrative from each major section. Many scholars and Bible commentators have offered various outlines of the book of Numbers, some with little detail and some with so much detail that they take up multiple pages. Some divide the book into as many as six large sections, but for tonight's purposes, I'm going to divide it into three sections. The first section is 1-1 through 10-10, and we'll entitle this section, The Devotion of the Israelites at Sinai. The second section is 10-11 to the end of chapter 25, and we'll entitle this section, The Rebelliousness of the Israelites in the Wilderness. Finally, we'll, we'll, we'll entitle the final section, The Challenges of the New Generation of Israelites in the Promised Land. And this goes from chapter 26 until the end of the book. In each of these three sections, I have selected a narrative or story that I think will help us to see the good news of the gospel in the book of Numbers. If you look in your Bible at the beginning of the book of Numbers, you'll see that the first chapter contains a census of all Israel. The purpose of this is to count the number of men that will be able to fight the battles that Israel has before them. Interesting to note, by the end of this book, all the people in this census have died, except for Moses, Joshua, and Caleb. Much of the first section of Numbers has to do with rules and regulations for the Israelites as they are moving and preparing to enter the land. They have yet to leave Mount Sinai, though, where they stopped it all the way back in Exodus chapter 19. They stopped at Sinai and received the Ten Commandments, instructions for the tabernacle, and laws concerning sacrifices and other matters that we find in the book of Leviticus. Chapters 5 and 6 give laws on uncleanness, confession of sin, a very interesting test for adultery, and the regulations for a Nazarite vow. Interestingly, this special vow is the one Samson is under in the book of Judges. We see in these opening chapters of Numbers that God desires his people to act in an orderly fashion and to obey him both in the wilderness and when they enter the promised land. Moving on, the blessing that the priest is to give to the people in 6, 22 through 27 reminds the people that God's will is to bless every Israelite, not just those who take the special Nazarite vow. Chapter 7 details how representatives from each tribe bring animals and goods for the tabernacle after it's built and, con and consecrated. Chapter 8 is again focused on the order of the tabernacle and the purification of the Levites before they enter the Lord's service. We see from this that the Lord desires for those who serve him to be purified and holy in his presence. Israel had traveled for only a year since leaving Egypt back in Exodus chapter 12. So God calls on them to celebrate the Passover again, commemorating the first Passover in which they left slavery in Egypt. The Passover causes the Israelites to look back on God's momentous acts in redeeming them from slavery and leading them out of Egypt to the Promised Land. The passage I want to pause and talk about for a few minutes is from Numbers chapter 9, verses 15 through 23. And there, I'll, I'll read that for us. On the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of testimony. And at evening, it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until morning. So it was always. The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. And whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, after that, the people of Israel set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the people of Israel camped. At the command of the Lord, the people, set out, people of Israel set out, and at the command of the Lord, they camped. As long as the cloud rested over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. 
Even when the cloud continued over the tabernacle many days, the people of Israel kept the charge of the Lord and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud was a few days over the tabernacle, and according to the command of the Lord, they remained in camp. Then, according to the command of the Lord, they set out. And sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning. And when the cloud lifted in the morning, they set out. Or if it continued for a day and a night, when the cloud lifted, they set out. Whether it was two days or a month or a longer time that the cloud continued over the tabernacle, abiding there, the people of Israel remained in camp and did not set out. But when it lifted, they set out. At the command of the Lord, they camped, and at the command of the Lord, they set out. They kept the charge of the Lord at the command of the Lord by Moses. The Israelites have been prepared by God to finally leave Mount Sinai and head for the Promised Land. There's probably some uncertainty among the people, and probably in Moses as well. There are over a million people camping and journeying in the wilderness with no real end in sight. They've seen God do miraculous things, but they're still learning to trust him. This passage goes a long way toward establishing trust among God's people. Wherever this cloud moved, the Israelites moved. As, as you can see in chapter 14, the Israelites refused to move at the Lord's command and they are punished severely. Without this cloud covering the tabernacle, the tabernacle had no use. The cloud represents the presence of God and his presence gives the tabernacle meaning. Verses 18, 20, and 23 repeat the phrase, at the command of the Lord. This shows us that the cloud hovering over the tabernacle provided the perfect means of divine guidance, but the people had to respond with perfect obedience. As we'll see from the rest of the book, these Israelites rarely respond to God in obedience. The people needed reminding over and over that the Lord was with them, leading and guiding them through the wilderness. We also constantly need reminding of God's presence in our lives. We experience hardship and wonder whether God still loves us or cares about what is happening to us. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6.19 that our bodies are actual temples of the Holy Spirit within us. So you and I don't need to look to a physical tabernacle to be reminded of God's presence. Because if we're believers, we have the Holy Spirit within us, working in us and reminding us of God's abiding presence. This should give us who are believers comfort, knowing that God's presence actually dwells within us. In times of hardship, we can look to God and be reminded that we are indwelt by him and that he will never leave us. Even when our love feels cold, he's with us and we can go to him. That's good news. And the book of Numbers reminds us and teaches us of God's unfailing presence with his people. The second section of Numbers takes up the majority of the book, about 15 chapters. And that would be 10, 10 through chapter 25. Paul House, a theologian and scholar describes this section as the theological and historical core of the book. Much takes place in these chapters, so I would encourage you to read it for yourself if you're looking for more detail about what's going on. I won't be able to address everything tonight, um, but there's a lot going on there. Uh, in chapter 10, verse 11, Israel finally leaves Mount Sinai, heading for the Promised Land. They had been there at Sinai for almost a whole year, hearing the instruction of God. As soon as they leave Sinai, the people start complaining, which becomes a common theme throughout the book. They're tired of eating manna and complain to Moses and to God himself. But God continues to provide and guide his people, but they continue to distrust the Lord and Moses. Moses' own siblings, Miriam and Aaron, question Moses' leadership and want to be leaders themselves, which invites God's punishment. 
In chapter 13, we finally get a glimpse of the promised land. Twelve spies are sent to spy out the land, but return with a bad report instead of trusting in the Lord's promise to give them the land. Joshua and Caleb are the only ones that believe God's promise to give them the land, and they are rewarded by God for their faith. The people believe the bad report and are punished by having to traverse the wilderness until the whole generation dies. This ends up being 40 years until they are finally able to enter the land in the book of Joshua. Moses continues to be a faithful leader throughout these chapters, interceding and pleading for the people before God, much like our Lord Jesus in John 17. But the people continue to rebel, with Korah and his followers questioning the priesthood of Aaron. They are destroyed because of their lack of trust in God's plan and purposes. Moses finally gives in to the people's complaints and disobeys God by striking the rock for water instead of speaking to it as God had said. This act excludes Moses from entering the promised land he had longed for his whole life. Aaron and Miriam eventually die, pointing forward to the new generation of Israelites that will enter the land. I want to pause in this section and look at chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. Read that for us. From Mount Hor, they... They set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way, a common theme. And the people spoke against God and against Moses, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, another common theme. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now you've probably heard this story before. It's probably one of the most popular stories from Numbers. But what we have here is the people once again complaining against the Lord and Moses. So God this time sends poisonous snakes among them to bite them. God tells Moses to craft a bronze snake and put it on a pole that the people can look at and be immediately healed from their snake bite. This event displays God's provision and compassion to the new generation of Israel so that they will trust God and know that he is with them. In this story, there's much New Testament symbolism and gospel richness. In fact, our Lord Jesus alludes to this story in John 3, 14 through 15, as a picture of his own death and the salvation he brings. And I'll uh, read that for us. Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus here, and he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What rich words here from our Lord Jesus. The connections are plain. As the Israelites must look to a snake on a pole for salvation, so must we look to Christ on the cross for salvation. The mercy of God is evident in both cases. Without his mercy, the Israelites and us would be hopelessly lost. Raymond Brown describes this story as an uncomplicated parable of God's astonishing grace, and that it is. The people had not done anything to merit God's grace in the construction of the bronze serpent as a way of salvation. But this story shows how God's mercy and grace is totally unmerited. And for us to be saved, we must not look to ourselves, but to Christ. We have nothing in ourselves worthy of saving, but in Christ we have everything we need. 
So tonight, if you haven't looked unto him for salvation, I urge you to. Jesus calls upon us to look upon him and live, as the Israelites looked upon the snake and were healed. Christ was lifted up, crucified for us, so that all we need to do is look and live. If you're a believer, I could urge you to continue looking to Christ and not become reliant on your own works. Good works cannot save, but only faith in Christ and his work on the cross. We must be reliant, continually reliant, on God's mercy and grace that he's shown in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. So as the Israelites looked upon this bronze snake for salvation, so must we look unto Christ and Christ alone for our salvation. Finally, we come to the last section of the book, and this is entitled, The Challenges of the New Generation of Israelites in the Promised Land. And this is chapters 26 through 36. We're coming to the end of the book, and I thank you for bearing, for bearing with me this long, and I promise we're almost done. There's so much information in Numbers that I did not want to pass over anything, but it's impossible to address every story. If you have time, I encourage you to go back and look at chapters 22 through 25 that uh, talk about Balaam and Balak, as uh, Josh mentioned this morning. Those are some very interesting chapters and lots of references to Christ there. Uh, the last 10 chapters of the book contain a census of the new generation of Israelites, which replaced the group that was counted in chapter 1. Starting with the census in chapter 26, we see the preparation of the new generation as they are about to enter the promised land, and that's where the book ends. God, through Moses, gives the people instructions for sacrifices as a sort of restatement of much of what Leviticus taught the first generation. At the end of the book, we have a recounting of the journey so far, along with the boundaries given for the promised land. In chapter 32, we learn that the tribes of Gad and Reuben and half the tribe of Manasseh settle in the land east of the Jordan River. And in chapter 35, we learn about the cities set apart for the Levites and the cities of refuge. The people are on the verge of the promised land, but God must first prepare them for their new life in the new land. In all of this, the whole book, especially in these last 10 chapters, we see the mercy of God. He's in control throughout the wilderness wanderings, and he always has a plan for his people. Even though they've complained over and over, God always comes back with mercy and faithful love. There's no one story I want to focus on in these last 10 chapters. I simply want to point out the faithfulness and grace of God to his people. Many scholars and non-Christians say that the God of the Old Testament is a different God from the God of the New Testament. In the Old Testament, he's angry and wrathful, wiping out nations and destroying people. While in the New Testament, many point out God's love and mercy in providing a way of salvation in Christ. After reading the Bible, however, we're met with a very different picture. God does not change, and he remains the same God forever. The coming of Christ was not God's plan B because of his people's disobedience. The promise of the Savior is, through, the promise of the Savior is present throughout the Old Testament in places like Genesis 3.15, Isaiah 53, and many others. Throughout the Bible, God remains merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love. The way of salvation is by faith in God and his promises. While the Israelites in the wilderness did not know of Christ, they could still be saved by having faith in God and what he had said. With all of these rules and regulations throughout the book, and specifically at the end of the book of Numbers, we could ask, how can God be merciful when commanding his people to do all of this? The answer is that in these rules, God's grace shines forth. God has provided his people with a way of deliverance. 
the heart and motivations of the person reveal whether they actually trust in God. Doing these sacrifices and following all these rules can be done, but one must trust in God and what he has said. The Israelites, as if you keep reading the Old Testament, they eventually lose their trust. They quit following God and turn to pagan idols. They disobey God's rules and believe that the pagan gods can bring them happiness and success. They're punished and exiled to a faraway land. But throughout the Old Testament, God's mercy shines forth, and the promise of a redeemer remains the same. How often do we lose our trust in God and turn to this world for answers? You see, you and I are not much different than these rebellious Israelites. We think that we'll find success by following the ways of the world and happiness by believing in ourselves rather than God. But this mindset is wrong, and Scripture tells us over and over again that we must trust God and look unto Christ for salvation. Remember Paul's warning back at the beginning in 1 Corinthians 10. The Israelites were punished for not trusting God, and their punishment serves as an example and warning for us. So I urge you tonight to trust in God and to rest in Christ for salvation. Merely following the rules and acting the right way will never save you. You must come to Christ and have faith in him. His blood fully atones for yours and my sins, so we must come to him. We cannot trust in ourselves, but we must trust in Christ. The book of Numbers teaches us that without Christ, without trust in God, we are doomed to trust in ourselves, which will ultimately lead to destruction. The book of Numbers also serves as an example for us that we must trust in God and his unmerited mercy and grace shown in his son, Jesus Christ, if we are ever to be saved. So tonight, if you haven't come to Christ, I urge you to. He's the only way that we can be saved. The Israelites refused to trust God and they were punished. And we also know from scripture that those who refuse to trust in Christ, God's son will eventually be punished for eternity. So if you haven't, come to Christ and trust in him. For the believer, I urge you tonight to continue trusting in Christ. Numbers teaches us that the things of this world can entice us away from following Christ. But we must learn from the Israelites' mistakes and let them teach us that trusting God is well worth it. It has truly been a privilege to preach to you tonight, and I hope that you have a better understanding of the book of Numbers and how this book points to our Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to close from a passage known as the Aaronic Blessing. Funny story, someone asked me last week after I preached if I was referring to the ironic blessing. Uh, so to clarify, this is the Aaronic blessing, and it's a blessing that Aaron and his priestly line are to give to the people. And it's found in Numbers 6, 24 through 26. And it says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Thank you.